Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans? Live, die, repeat. Yeah, I wanted to say I think we're we're what we're a week out from Groundhog Day, and that's uh, that's very pertinent. Happy Groundhog <laughs> Day to everybody. We're a week into the two weeks of winter that apparently the the groundhog saw that we're getting uh, extra, and we're doing a movie that you guys, the fans, the listeners, mm-hmm. voted in. Yeah, yeah, we did a uh, well, we did a vote not on time loop movies, but we're going to talk about them a lot today. We are. Uh, we did a vote on Emily Blunt movies because we've got a special episode coming up, another potluck for episode twenty. Uh, if you've paid attention even a little bit to what we like to talk about generally, you can guess what Emily Blunt movie we're going to be covering. But we'll get into more detail on that at the end of the episode, or you can check the show notes, obviously. Uh, but we put up a few of her movies uh, for a vote, and I'm personally very happy that we went with Edge of Tomorrow. There may be two of them that, that were out of front ahead for me, uh, but I, I really like this movie. Yeah, not very many votes for Jungle Cruise. Yeah, we thought a couple of you would try to punish us maybe and get us to watch it. Like, I'll, I You say really could have made I... us both watch <laughs> yeah. it if you voted for it. Yeah. I say that, but also I haven't really heard bad things about it. People all no. seem to say it's very enjoyable, despite being, I think, way over two hours long and costing $350 million, which is wild, uh, for another Disney Park movie or, uh, like, theme ride movie. Well, let's be real. How much but of that did The Rock make? The Rock probably commanded, what used, do you say, like 30? He used to command 25 mil. Per, like, okay, so as his bottom line, that was like the okay, low. So the low. That's his rate, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, probably thirty-five, forty mil. Yeah. So hopefully, yeah, no hopefully way. Emily got a couple mil out of that because uh, I hear she's good in it. But we know that she's great in this. Uh, today we're going to talk about Edge of Tomorrow, which tells the story of Major William Cage, who enters humanity's war against the invading aliens known as Mimics, with no combat experience. After promptly dying in action, Cage awakes a day earlier and soon realizes he is caught in a cycle. Live, die, repeat. Edge of Tomorrow stars Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, was directed by Doug Lyman, and released May 28th, 2014. And you can find it online, at least in Canada, uh, as a digital rental. Now, what I failed to mention in that outline is Emily Blunt's character, Rita Vertasky. Um... So maybe we want to, if you, I don't, I don't know where you want to go with this, Tay, but we can start by just talking about Emily Blunt, because I think she's actually an interesting kind of under the radar, consistent star. She is in many ways. Uh, I just wish that she, like, even when it comes to movies like this, where she is kind of sold as the co-lead, I just mm-hmm. want more of her. It And that just is more to her credit as a as a soon to be if not already movie star i think Mm -hmm. she has what it takes to kind of i don't know overcome being being locked into one genre one type of movie she can kind of traverse all genres and kind of fits into all the the whole spectrum of of censorship too you know from g-rated movies to r-rated movies i can see her kind of operating the whole spectrum so i think she has all the perks of a movie star yeah no she definitely she has this jack of all trades quality i think right because she has done action like this she's done more dramatic work uh more serious stuff she's been i mean i think she does some singing in i can't i can't say i've seen it but there are two nomeo and juliet's 
and I believe she does some singing in those, if not something else. I just, I know that she kind of seems like she can step into any role and pull it off, and also doesn't seem too demanding of the spotlight or the center of the stage uh, throughout these movies either. She's sort of a great co-leader, great supporting, you know, just just past the leads, like in things like um, Looper and uh, The First Quiet Place. She does a lot, like, I'd say most of the heavy lifting in The First Quiet Place and virtually all of it in the second one. I honestly would argue she does a lot of the lifting in Looper too. She does a lot more heavy acting than, I think, <laughs> Bruce Willis or Joseph Gordon-Levitt do in that movie. So, you know yeah, what? Bruce Willis I was think... definitely phoning it in. And I, I think it's to Ryan Johnson's credit that Bruce Willis uh, plays really well in that movie. And uh, JGL is, uh, you know, one of his high school friends. And I, I like that he's in all his movies and you to know varying degrees of success, I'd say. JGL tries really, really hard. And I give him a lot of credit. For no that. one no one can say he doesn't try. Right? He tries he's there. very he's, hard. He shows up. Uh, Emily Blunt tries hard and succeeds in every role. Why is mm-hmm. this? Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? So I don't think, especially right now, I think she occupies this weird, undefinable space where I haven't seen, I know she has some more serious movies, but I don't think any of them could be called Oscar bait. I don't think she's done anything where she took on prosthetics or a crazy accent or did a biopic, you know, that really drew attention to the craft and the method. And she also isn't in any real franchises, again, other than if you want to call Romeo and Juliet a franchise or the rumored um, sequel to this movie, trying to make it a franchise, which, I mean, Doug Lyman said basically if Blunt and Cruz get back on board, then it's a go. If they don't, it's not. That's basically the, the hurdle. Yeah, I don't and, even know if I want to get into like where we think this could go as a franchise, but uh, I don't know if I like this. I don't sound think of that's it. particular yeah, I don't think it's particularly interesting. And again, she did the second quiet place, but that's written directed by her husband. And I mean one of the weirder aspects of it when I was doing research just to see like where does Emily Blunt hang out in people's minds, if you Google her name, I'd say seventy percent of the headlines are about her relationship with John Krasinski. Who most people is, know because of the office of the office he's one of the most recognizable non-movie stars i think operating in hollywood i wouldn't call him a movie star but i think he has a critical mass of recognition and to the extent that people are kind of obsessed it seems like at least when you just read google results with the nature of his marriage with emily blunt and it seems to be half the things she has to talk about on talk shows and things like that about how her and krasinski met or what they're doing and less about what she's contributing to to the film industry and things like that. I was trying to think of how could you even compare her to somebody else? And I think maybe like uh, Elizabeth Moss or Amy Adams. Adams, though, has gone more Oscar-y and, you know, is definitely more taking bigger swings. Well, she's also jumped um, into franchise mode, too. Yeah. And and uh, that's the other thing to, to mention is that Blunt was supposed to be Black Widow. It was apparently hers, and then she had a scheduling error, something like that. And again, like, if you look at the Thank first goodness. Black Widow role, Iron Man 2, not the hardest thing to give up. Like, it's you're, you're playing third or fourth string. They're trying to see if they can fit you into this universe that they don't even know is a thing yet. I think it's a a good thing for all of us that she had that scheduling conflict because we got a bunch of very interesting movies in the meantime, like edge of tomorrow. And yeah, Scarlett Johansson played that role in the Marvel universe pretty well. 
I also would like to see like Scar Jo partake in more of the movies that Emily Blunt's got to experience. Mm-hmm. I don't like when actors get locked into franchises like that for this very reason because you're, now we're talking about two really amazing actors who, like one who got locked in, one who didn't. Um, Scarlett Johansson was able to break out a little bit with some other movies, but we like got under saying, the skin, which I yeah. think goes a long way to uh, to it fixed a lot of issues. <laughs> Scarjo, uh, Emily but Blunt, yeah. she, she makes excellent choices with her mm-hmm. with her career trajectory so far, or at least in our opinions. And mm-hmm. uh, lately, what like what's she been in recently? Just Mary Poppins, I guess, in the past couple of years. Mary Poppins and Jungle Cruise. And Jungle Cruise, that's uh, right. Quiet Place 2, right? A couple that were all sort of affected, uh, delayed by the pandemic, things like that. I was also trying to think of, like, what what's your what's your comparison to, to a male actor? And I was thinking maybe Oscar Isaac a little bit, right? Like... Isaac has moved into award territory with, you know, inside Lewin Davis and franchisey too with Star Wars. But I think maybe that they're, they're roughly in the same place where I don't think Isaac wants to be locked into one thing that he does. I would agree with and that I, as a similarity. And I, and I don't think Blunt either. Right? They also haven't like latched on to here's the director who I'm going to work with a bunch or I found my 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 one thing and I'm going to lock into it. It almost feels like maybe you're right where she's being consistent, she's being um, valuable as as a contributor to your movie, and maybe still just trying to figure out like what is actually her thing, what is going to be a breakthrough moment into yeah. that upper echelon. Because I don't know what the one thing is, but she does bring it for every role, and you wanna you wanna be on her side. She's very heroic in a lot of her roles even in roles where she's not playing some kind of action hero you just kind of cheer for cheer her character on and there's something when you're an actor who can do this consistently over so many movies there's something to say about your charisma or your actor charm Mm -hmm. and she definitely has it like in this movie she's going opposite one of the greatest like and i'm using my fingers to quote this like movie (laughs) stars of all time Tom mm-hmm. Cruise is a bona fide movie star. When you look up movie star in the dictionary, it's literally a picture of him. So yeah. she's going opposite of him in this movie. Or like they're working together, but going like she's stealing scenes from him. In most yeah. cases, she is taking the scene and making it her own. And I think that's a credit to Tom Cruise as well as her because I think Tom Cruise uses his star persona against himself a lot in this movie, and that's just one of the mm-hmm. many ways he... He secedes a lot of scenes away because Emily Blunt's character is actually more interesting and more, uh, I don't know, more fun, more engaging. And she she pulls more of the weight of the movie in so many ways. We'll get into a little bit later about how their characters interact and what they mean to one another. But I think you're right that Cruz, Cruz for being for having all the trappings of being as famous as he is for this long, which I don't think is ever going to be a good thing for a person's psyche. And you're never going to survive in the public eye that long without some very weird things, right? That we all know about Tom Cruise, like the middle religious tooth. choices, the middle tooth, the Oprah stuff, the Katie Holmes, like all these things, like you have those, this baggage, you can't be this famous. You can't be recognizable on a global scale without stuff like this. I do think the current era of his stardom is incredibly interesting and very impressive, essentially, where if you want to chart like his longest franchise, you look at Mission Impossible from beginning to current and two more in pre-production or post-production right now. 
if you look at his character in Mission Impossible 2, directed by John Woo, it's very much that style. He's very slick. He does everything perfectly. And then I think just shortly after that, like, Mission Impossible 3 kind of really, it doesn't flop, but it does not deliver. And you could tell, I mean, there, there's all this background on how the producers were kind of, they were looking at who are we going to get to be the next Ethan Hunt, right? How are we going to do exit crews out of this? Well, is that why they and, brought in, uh, what's Renner? Jeremy Renner? Yeah. Yeah, so they brought in Renner in the fourth one, and the idea was to do this sort of soft swap tail out or um, sp- spin off idea. And at the same time, you know, he had Brad Bird directing that one. And I think Chris McCory was pinch hitting on the script already, uh, who also did work on Edge of Tomorrow's script, Valkyrie. McCory is the architect of, of Tom Cruise's current persona, I'd say, as a movie star. In many ways, um, yeah. He he and really channeled I, I think, a lot of what Cruz was into something different. Well, and I think they, they just understood that in 4, they had to redefine this character as being kind of sloppier. Like, the, the idea in the end became that, like, Hunt will get the job done, but on the way, he might get shot or his heart might, his heart might stop. Um, he might drown. He'll fall over. Things will be rough and slipshod along the way, but it's the, the ends justify the means. And you compare that to virtually any other masculine action star right now. These these guys that are unstoppable forces like The Rock, Jason Statham, Vin Diesel, like the I mean, the entire Fast and Furious series. There are all these background stories and, and articles from the set where these guys have to have the equal number of punches and neither of them can ever knock each other out because it would affect how we see their personas that they're not invincible. Yeah, you can't have think- like a bruise on a cheek. Unless mm. it looks cool, and yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it has to be like aesthetically perfect, like cheek cut, yeah, or something, like, right? Yeah, and it has to exactly. be even. The other, the other guy has to have a cheek cut too, <laughs> right? Whereas, I that's all this is say. It's a very long thing. I could talk about Cruz for a very long time, but the idea that in this movie he starts out as like an embarrassing coward, a guy who yeah. weasels his way out of what is set up as being like a little bit risky, but they're pretty sure based on intelligence, not a super dangerous assignment. And I mean, you, you've gotten the quotes here. You call it cringy and you're right. Like this character is not someone you want to be at the beginning. No, he's not your, he's not a Tom Cruise type hero, even not even like this kind of do it the hard way and get the job done type hero. He's not a hero. He is Mm -hmm. void of all heroism and, when he shows up to that initial meeting with Brendan Gleeson, who plays the army ge- or the, I guess the general of the all head, the human of the army United forces. Point, yeah. <laughs> um, like that scene is, is hard to watch because Tom Cruise is just, you can see his, he's doing a really good job of showing us visually. And the movie does this a lot of showing actors like think and process. And then mm-hmm. their actions kind of tell you what they were thinking. And when he's trying to get out of going into battle, it's, it's awful to watch. He's like just just this little worm. Yeah, and they literally like that's the thing. There could have been these other versions of this, but I love that they go basically where he's like he misunderstands the assignment, and then he call, he he pulls rank, and then he starts threatening the the leader of the yeah, Allied he, he human forces. Him. Yeah, he tries to blackmail him. Are you blackmailing me, Major? And then he just tries to run away, and he gets tased. Right, like it's there's nothing gratifying or interesting or anything that would make you want to fit in. And I, I do think they kind of still get across the horror of his situation. Cause it does, 
it goes from being a normal meeting to being you're going to be on the front lines uh get ready and you have no choice in the matter and but it appears that the general is doing this as a form of punishment because of who cage cruz's character is in the world at this point which he's like an uh, a promoter of the military and of the armed forces but isn't actually in the armed forces he's a poser yeah he's in, like in a sense he's like he's, he's like a mouthpiece right like yes. cause he says that like he had an advertising firm before the war and he was an rotc in college so he's like yeah okay i can advertise the military propaganda is an important part of any military machine i'm not sure though that the original assignment from gleason is punishment i think it's just deploying resources where he's like we're gonna drop three hundred thousand exosuited soldiers on the beach our satellites say there's minimal enemy activity go down there and get some footage of us killing a couple mimics and we'll move on i'm not actually sure at the beginning that gleason has an issue so much gleason is like this is a resource for me and i'm going to deploy it and then as soon as Cruz blackmails him he's like oh okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna tell bill paxton that you're you're a mutineer which you are but also that like you're you're an absolute liar nothing you say can be trusted it goes from this is your assignment you're part of this military too oh you tried to blackmail me this is what happens yeah and he you truly get a get zero arc in the general's character because even by the end he is still so untrusting and will do everything by the book mm-hmm. in a sense like he's gonna, he he's a warrior of justice yeah gleason gives this great understated performance where like nothing really surprises him even in later scenes where like obviously what is being told to him which should be surprising but he, he comes across as this very shrewd controlled seen it all been in a been in a thousand battles like i really like he's he's in it for you know five or six minutes probably total screen time and yeah I think he does a great job yeah so now we've talked about all the acting in this movie mm-hmm. <laughs> um and all the movie star persona that's going around but yeah. let's talk about what this movie actually is because alien invasion movies were hot from like 2006 to 2020 pretty much mm-hmm. there yeah. and they come in all shapes and sizes uh and pretty much talk about the same thing an alien invasion and what humans would do why mm-hmm. is this movie so different well i think uh you know it, its core thing is that it's a time loop movie it's uh right. it's something it's that mixing people love genres yeah yeah yeah. use a time loop but set in a war which is not usually or in my in off the top of my head right now ever been applied together right like the the most famous obviously is is groundhog day you had um russian doll on netflix a couple years ago they're working on a second season which was which was great i remember as a kid there was an aladdin animated tv show on the disney channel and one episode they had was a time loop story and i was obsessed with it it was, it was this thing where like this traveling caravan was attacked by raiders in the desert and when they knock over like this treasure chest this jewel comes out into the sunlight and when the sunlight hits it everything rewinds and they start over Okay. There's also there's an X Files wow. episode that's um that's a time loop about a bomb in a bank that's great. It's kind of an evergreen concept because at least as far as 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 I like to look at it, it's a it's an immediately accessible fantasy about being able to live a life where you don't have to learn anything. Like you you've hit the limit of what you have to know. No, there are no surprises anymore. I think one of the one of the right it's ultimate fantasy. 
Yeah, one of the easier ways to describe our existence is uh, one of chaos. It's just kind of how the world works. There's a certain unpredictability even to people with the most comfortable lives. So the idea of being like, I get to live this day and I know exactly what's going to happen is very comforting and safe. And then when you throw on top of that, like stunting on people where you can say like, this is about to happen, this is about to happen, this is about to happen. That's always one of the most gratifying parts of these movies where you watch them read the script ahead of what's happening in the action. Yeah, it's a very common trope of these types of films, and obviously uh, Edge of Tomorrow is no different in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as handling the alien invasion, it's pretty unique because, or not maybe unique in the sense that it starts with an opening newsreel of footage gathered, because that's not mm-hmm. exactly novel, but yeah. I, I do really like how the war almost feels kind of like in many ways like world war ii in the sense that there's battles mm-hmm. on the beach we're using a lot of the similar visuals and uh like of people like para dropping into the beach yep. landing in the water you know it's very Sand reminiscent and water of, and grit of like yeah. the normandy scenes from saving private mm-hmm. ryan um and even the locations like you know the alien ship first arrives over hamburg germany uh mm-hmm. and then it progresses through Europe. America is still seemingly not that bad yet, but yeah. is on the verge of being taken over if they lose this battle in in London. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, they they definitely modeled this after. Like you can look up, I we I have a source or two that I can link about um, the DP kind of saying like he didn't want this to look like a futuristic war movie or a doom and gloom war movie either, where it's all like takes place at night and they're like holograms and neon visuals and stuff he's like no this we're 100 percent taking our cues from like saving private ryan yeah we want that, that gray way. sort of white light on the beach Heathrow airport it all has this kind of general like more militaristic than futuristic even even these power exosuits that they have right kind of come across like gunmetal gray they're ridged like rifle barrels i think it all kind of fits in without trying to say it's super advanced yeah, the suits uh, are, first of all, very interesting and cool. I always loved mech suits as part of science fiction and fantasy. Oh, yeah. Uh, and these ones are very stripped down. They're very, uh, uh, what's the word? Like Minimal? Uti- like utilitarian. Yeah. Like they they have a very specific function, and they operate one way, and they, they also aren't perfect machines either. Like, th- this isn't uh, like a Pacific Rim-style thing where... These are immaculate machines. They they break down a lot in the movie, and they kind of make a habit of showing the machines breaking down at ba- at bad times and costing. It just has a, a horrible their user, lives. a horrible user interface that seems to be by default in Japanese. Yes, um, yeah, very hard to turn the safety off on your weapon. And you know that's just a subtle plot detail of like making the suits a bit troublesome and burdensome, mm-hmm. but also uh, it's part of what makes this movie kind of feel more realistic to me. It's like a added yeah. layer of realism. But yeah, so circling back around on the war stuff and the the core sort of vehicle of this movie being the time loop, I think the time loop idea is really well suited to a war movie because and if you want to be as pessimistic or as judgmental as possible, like time loops are the ultimate fantasy for cowards. If you're afraid of not knowing what's going to happen next, there's nothing better to be than in a time loop. You'll, you'll always know what's going to happen. You don't have to fear that kind of uncertainty. And that's why... And then you have Cage's arc is in learning to overcome his cowardice. 
essentially. In a number, I think there are a number of chunks to that. But essentially, he goes from someone who would blackmail and try to escape uh, his duty to when he's lost the time loop and he knows that his life is truly on the line, going headfirst into it. And even even understanding that he may have to sacrifice the people that he loves. Uh, I think it's a great arc, and I think the time loop directly uh, suits it. Yeah, he's really one of the only characters that is able to achieve an arc, and that's part of the consequence and the blessing of a time loop film as well. You only have one character who can truly grow. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I thought the scene we're going to talk about today kind of breaks that down a bit more because it's one of few moments in these types of films where you actually can see a level of growth in other characters. And uh, I want to Mm -hmm. save that conversation for the scene. Um, But I agree. You have a character do like a very completed arc. And that's why I think you set Tom Cruise up as like, sorry, I'm going to use his character name from now on. You, you have cage set up this way. And then by the end of the film, you actually are starting to cheer for him. Even though I still think it's kind of like you're cheering for humanity and you're cheering for the two leads together. You have this added sense of respect because of how gritty he's got overseeing, mm-hmm. uh, specifically, uh, Vertaski die so many times. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, and I, I think that that arc is compelling, yeah, because of what you see him go through and what you understand that he must have seen. And then also there's the more tactile aspect where you love seeing the sequences where him and Vertaski are working in tandem seamlessly, right? Like, it, it, it's this idea of getting to see, like, a master work because, like, you know, if he's done 10,000 hours of this just in training every day with Vertaski and memorizing how the beach works and and where all the mimics are, you get to see him execute that flawlessly, and it, it's definitely engaging to do that. I mean, it's like watching virtually any John Wick film, but you understand that <laughs> he's played the same day, you know, a thousand times over. Right. There, there is definitely something to the level of intricate choreography that puts our minds at ease when the character is just mm. gracefully going through action sequences like this. There's something about it that gets us excited and puts us at our minds at ease at, at the same time. Mm. Um, I think one of my favorite things about this movie is how it doesn't treat its audience like they're stupid. So as you be, as the character begins to understand what the time loop is, you know, we don't, we get like maybe the first half hour of the movie is the full understanding. Like he probably lives through two days in the first half, half an hour. Mm-hmm. And then it speeds up exponentially. We don't have to see yeah. him like learn bit by bit here. Here, I'm going to learn this part here. I'm going to learn this part. Um, it's very expedited to make it mm-hmm. seem like there's probably like hundreds of days where he's died crammed in here. And that's really impressive filmmaking because it's really hard to not be like, Oh, but the character needs to learn this or the audience would understand the character needs to learn this or we're not going to yeah. get to this point in the story. The The direction and story writing is amazing because it it kind of picks up only where you need to see the growth. And then it actually like just infers that uh, Vertaski and Cage have done these things numerous times um, through just good visual storytelling. Like you just mm-hmm. see them like prepare for something and they go, oh, wait, and then they move forward like they've done it a million times before. They don't need to say, oh, yeah, we this is what you do here. Um, Yeah, it's one of the more effective and I think valid montages in action movies that something set in a time loop. I think it's more reasonable to be like, why would you like a montage is the perfect way to get across what's going on here where it's, you know, two seconds of him and Vertaski, like with a map of the battlefield and him saying like, we go 
10 feet to the right and then you duck and then you roll and then there's a mimic over that hill and and things like that and yeah you don't have to once you have her and the no, guy we Noah Taylor's he, character no yeah Noah Taylor from from Wes Anderson stuff we talked about in the last episode uh her and Noah Taylor sort of explain how the t- why the time loop is happening it's a, a side effect of what makes their enemy so dangerous um once you have that, it's just kind of like, let's go. Let's take off. Yeah, for I real. See some, I want to see some shenanigans with him and J-Squad and and Sergeant Farrell. And I want to see some stuff with him and Vertasky training. And then you slowly just need to make progress on that beach, um, which which takes you up, up to like partway in the second act where they, I think maybe the least graceful part of the script is where he's kind of like, I can't get us off the beach. And then he goes and he steals a motorcycle and goes into London and has a pint and then sees the, the mimics coming into London. It's like if the Germans had crossed at Dunkirk. Yeah. And then, and then he just kind of does another little mini training montage. And then he's like, we're off the beach. Yeah. That's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that scene later, but I, uh, yeah. I agree. There's not like a, it's very, it's not very graceful. In terms of I do, I we've do, already like, seen this, yeah. why why are we relearning and kind of uh, going back mm-hmm. to this exact same kind of feeling? I th- it feels like they just needed there to be another hurdle there, but I also in some of the research showed that like there are a lot of versions of this script, like four or five, and one of the earlier ones that either Lyman liked or the previously assigned director really liked was like eighty percent of the movie was them trying to get off the beach. It wasn't about going and finding the Omega wherever it is. So I feel like that's some remnant where like getting off the beach was supposed to be a bigger hurdle. And then in this, in the, the final form of the script, it, it occupies this weird space where they're trying right. to give it all this gravity of getting off the beach. But that makes their, a lot of sense. So, their solution is just let's have him go see a low point in London where the mimics affect like civilians. And then he'll train harder, which is not a very palpable like rung on the ladder right or or point in the plot yeah because yeah it's just not very clear that that's the result of that scene right yeah and uh maybe it's time we jump into our scene for the day because we've kind of beat around the bush a lot and i think we kind of got to jump in yep Uh, by by all means i think we're we're right around a true midpoint The scene takes place very close to the midpoint of the movie, which is the exact kind of scene we typically like to talk about on this podcast. Um, the movie is just around, is around two hours long, and this scene takes place at one hour, three minutes, and five seconds in. Um, and it goes to one hour, ten minutes, or one hour, ten and a half minutes, roughly. So it's a, it's a seven-minute scene. It's a little longer than we usually do, but this is a, mm-hmm. a true scene. And I think it makes perfect sense to talk about this as a moment in this film that is a standout uh yeah particularly for its pacing uh i'm gonna go, i'm just gonna say the most obvious thing right off the bat the fact that it's quiet mm-hmm. and yeah, it's quiet we get tons of emily blunt like probably more than any other scene in the that's movie. right yeah and we are talking about emily this is emily blunt month so you know what yeah. it does make sense <laughs> um in in this scene after breaking through enemy lines, uh, Cage and Vertasky stop at a small farmhouse to refuel their car. Uh, while searching for fuel, they find a helicopter, and Vertasky's injury is revealed, so Cage has to uh, aid her. And while doing so, he is forced to reveal the futility of their next move. 
Yeah, we and yeah, we picked the scene for those reasons just mentioned, but also because I think this is a a very important point in any of your time loop arcs, and it's the point at which someone realizes um, it's a burden to be in a time loop. There is a burden that comes with knowledge and certainty, because it's it's a really good way in terms of story making to make your main character come to grips with the things that they cannot change, right? Um, so in Groundhog Day, this is a scene where Phil realizes he can't save that unhoused man. And they, they show him many times, like, trying to find him earlier in the day and, and trying to save him from exposure, getting him soup, getting him medical care. And there's nothing he can ever do. And they, they I think they translate that idea very well into this, where you have, over the course of this scene, Cage not rushing anymore, not really focusing on the mission and instead just trying to enjoy some downtime with Rita because essentially what he reveals at the at the end of the scene is that he does not know a way forward in their mission where she does not die and if he goes forward and succeeds and destroys the omega she is dead forever yeah and it's an important hurdle for the movie to have to take because and that's what and I love how this is a 7 minute scene you know Uh, A lot of the times this moment could be rushed or seen as less important to the story's arc. Uh, Just kind of something you need to check off in a movie like this. But uh, the direction of the scene allows it to kind of feel like you need to absorb it. You know, it kind of Mm -hmm. takes a pause from all this uh, rushed action. And and I'm not saying that in a bad way. The the action sequences are great. But Mm -hmm. um, when it finally slows down and you have this quiet moment between two characters just talking and kind of for the first time being characters it -hmm. it makes you feel like you have to pay more attention and you it lures you into the scene really effectively yeah and i think it would be tempting as a director to say if this is like this key hurdle for cage he should be angry he should be bargaining he should be like you know all the all the signs of 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 dealing with trauma right uh he should be yelling about how he can't say i I can't save you rita like i think in my mind there's so many ways you can see this playing out where it's bigger and it's the point where they're going for it right and there's tears and breaking stuff and it's a very quiet defeated scene because yeah and it gets across that gravity of i've watched rita die however many times you want to say and that's one that's always one of the fun things about this type of movie is wondering how many times are in there the apparently like um harold ramus said that phil in groundhog day lived ten thousand years in that day but again that's never said in the movie that's kind of extended canon but i mean that's always something that's playing in your mind is like rita says in the scene just before this that she saw someone important to her die 300 times 300 times right so who knows how many times Cage's Watcher die, and I love that he's kind of luxuriating. Well, maybe that's the wrong term. He's living in the idea of, like, we can do this. It's relatively safe. I'm not going to die in a way that loses the loop. And I don't really have another option forward. So, like, I know there's coffee here. I know there's sugar, which Rita likes in her coffee. She's injured. I can I can sew up her wound. Like, all these things that are futile because they're not finishing the mission this is all going to be erased as soon as he dies um there there's kind of a charming quality to it too where he's like i just want to make i want to feel a little bit better i want to make rita feel a little bit better because i've come to care for her 
it's a it's a really interesting moment as an audience member because you kind of realize what he's doing and then Rita realizes what he's doing and when you realize it it's a very char- like I don't know I felt like it was a very charming moment it's like uh you kind of realize that he is simply trying to enjoy a moment with Rita and not it's not necessarily like a love thing it's not an attraction thing per se it's just like he wants to sit down and enjoy another person's company because he's been doing nothing but reliving the same day over and over again. So there's a moment yeah, they, where the audience feels that. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. Like this one, I'd say in terms of the time loop mechanics, I think this is the only time in the movie where they put it in Rita's perspective, right? So if this is in Cage's perspective, I think the way that plays is like you see him seeing Rita die over and over. You do a montage of the farmhouse and how it ends every time. This is the only time in the movie where they play it from Rita's, like, perspective and the way that she would perceive from being outside the time loop, which is how we are, too. So you see it slowly dawn on her that Cage is, Cage already knows what's going to happen, but he's acting like this is the leading edge of our progress so far. It's a phenomenal little shot in reverse where you're looking almost you're having blunt look almost right down the barrel at you as um cage is like kneeling in front of her making her coffee yeah it's pov and then it and then it it does pov yeah for her looking directly at cage and cruz plays these two or three little looks where he's like okay the the gig is up maybe maybe because he's seen that look on her face before where she realizes that he's that he that he's um he's not really focused on the mission and that he actually already has the helicopter keys and he knows that there's a shirt in the other room that will fit her and, and he knows everything about what's going on and she really comes across as betrayed I, I think there's there's a certain degree of him taking her agency away when when he's acting on this knowledge that he doesn't have yeah that's uh, what I mean to say like when so when the audience realizes it, it comes across as this nice moment but then when Rita mm-hmm. realizes it, she literally pulls like sh- she like flips out and mm-hmm. even when she's thinking like that it's just gonna be like oh i guess we're just gonna have to wait here for a bit she pulls up the gun really abruptly mm-hmm. and it's like we should just reset whoa it's a dead end hey just if it's all the same to you i'm tired i'm in pain i'd rather just stop for i'll tell you what take a few minutes coffee's ready i i love like again they're both really good at that too there's a number of times where she just has to walk up with a with a handgun and and shoot gauge and it's it's done for a lot of comedy in the edit in the earlier montages, yes. but in this one, like again, like I love he's got the Cruz has this flinch when he sees sees her draw her sidearm. Yeah, he's very right? vulnerable. And it's always here. very very hasty, right? And again, after this, when like she's about to stab him to kill him in the hospital when when he's out of the time loop. Yeah, and he kind of flips out. It's kind of funny every time. And it, it's a recurring joke that works yeah. every time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's but, probably yeah, no, because of both the characters' charisma. And the yeah. way Tom Cruise reacts, the way Emily Blunt mm-hmm. kind of carries that note of comedy, absolutely. Yeah, well, she's all like she's very um, blunt. Bi- you know, yeah, she's <laughs> okay. It that, honestly, like we're what thirty thirty odd minutes in, uh, forty minutes in, and, yeah. and 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 we just got we just got that pun. So there you go, yeah, everyone you go. playing the bingo at home. Yeah, you're welcome uh, for not t- using that drink. So- sooner. Yeah. Um, I would say she's very professional, but she is very blunt in terms of being like the only other person who knows this time loop thing. She's always very ready to just be like, listen, I'm tired. Let's just reset. 
and I love like this is something that the movie does not get into at all. I think for the, for for good reasons. But looking at her perspective and being outside the time loop and being like, I just want to reset. That is such a leap of faith that if she shoots Cage, he's not just dead on the floor in front of her. The movie no also doesn't get into does like, are these all branching realities? Yeah, right? like, exactly. There, are there There's just a lot like more. are there six hundred realities where Rita Vertasky just shot Cage in the face? and assume that she would wake up the next day with no knowledge of it. They don't get into all these things which are endemic to this type of a of a structure and I think that's another strength of the movie is that they're not we're not going to bother with the sort of secondary um issues of time travel and time looping and who's aware and who isn't and is it a cut to black etc. The which best time travel movies do it here, but yeah. Like the best time travel movies and the best movies with alternate realities are the ones that don't explain very much. Because you can't possibly explain all the quantum physics involved within yeah. the, a narrative movie that you expect people to enjoy. I mean, I love this these aspects from Rita's perspective and they give you so much more of her character where she's saying, "I'm a soldier first. It's not about me. Why do you care about me, Cage?" And he says, he says, I wish I didn't know you so well, or I wish I hadn't gotten to know you. And that's that. That's the curse of the time loop, right? You have this burden of knowledge, but not just of what's going to happen, but the people around you, the people that you're going to spend these potentially 10,000 years with, you're going to come to care about them no matter what. Yeah, it's uh, you kind of already alluded to it earlier, but in the scene prior to this scene, they're in the car driving away and the character of Hendrix is mentioned and it's just someone that we hear about in this specific scene and it's someone that she went through her time loop with seemingly and saw him die over 300 times and it impacted her to a pretty severe point uh, of being pretty much of of being pretty unemotive of knowing that like she shouldn't she shouldn't get to know anyone and I think that's like that's a war that's a war media trope that plays very well into the time loop thing. Where well, that's like, what she says guys, too, right? She says, this is war. Yeah. You have guys in the trenches. They're like, you know, I, I know I've seen in another war movie. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but we're like, people are like, where are you from? Where are you from? Like you got a girl back home, etc. And like one of the guys is always like, I don't want to know any of that about any of you because yeah. I like, I don't, I don't want to miss you when you're gone or vice versa. Um, it, so yeah. it's another specific war trope that fits very well into the time loop. And it feels cold of her character in the moment, but then you, uh, it feels even more cold when you see her kind of putting this resistance up to Cage later in the scene, in the scene we're talking about, um, because you can see the, that conversation about Hendrix kind of reflected in, in Cage when he's talking to her, when he says, I wish I didn't know you, but I do. Mm-hmm. And it's clear in that moment that he is reflecting upon the many times he's seen her die in and specifically in this moment in this helicopter that she's about to start up she dies here every time Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah and i mean i think i think this this also gives a lot of purchase to where he is in his arc because his arc is not complete you go from an you know an abject coward to he gets the time loop and he finds Vertasky because he thinks that she can help. Like, he's because she's famous from the previous battle where she did so well because she had the power. And then when she explains what's going on, he's like, okay, how do I get rid of it? That's his main goal. And then she's like, no, 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 this is how we win the war. When the war becomes his goal. And then in the process of trying to win the war, he gets to know her too well. And again, 
it's, it's no longer preservation of self. He's not that type of coward, or he's not at that level anymore. But then it becomes preservation of Rita, which again is off center from the goal. Like Rita, yeah, it's attachment ag- to emotion. Survi- yeah, should matter against the survival of the human race. But but she does, right? So I, I like that they kind of tell you like he's not there yet. He's not. Yeah, it's a. It's he's a not a war major. hero. He's not selfless on on the on the level of the. Would he sacrifice Rita for the human race? Right now, he's not so sure. Yeah, and it's like you said. It's another. It's like another significant character hurdle that he must clear before he can actually achieve his goal. And one of the reasons I love this scene is because there actually is a very clear beginning, middle, end, and a full complete arc in this scene, and you mm-hmm. gain something from it. All these character interactions are not just character interactions because they lead towards something that impacts the plot from here on out. Yeah. Well, and I mean the the conclude the, how the scene concludes, you know, following the fate that that Cage is always fighting against. You know, Farrell talks about fate earlier in the movie and right. how he doesn't believe in it. He's brushing up against this edifice of fate once again, where he's saying, "There's nothing I can do that that will keep you alive." So he sees he sees her die yet again, and then his next loop he decides, you know, what, I'm just going to go alone. Well, right? and he he gains her middle name as not like her true yes. middle name. It's implied yep. in this in the scene prior that she gave him a fake middle name uh, mm-hmm. to probably shut him up. Yeah, and uh, in this right before she dies, uh, right before they both die, she tells him her true middle name is Rose, and then he. I like to think that even though he doesn't use, we never see Tom or we never see, we never see Cage's character use this uh, with Vertasky later in the film. I like to think that it's implied that this is now a further level of trust that he can pull at any point with her because mm-hmm. we don't really see many repetitions after this point. It's mostly clear cut narrative storytelling and you, it's just implied that this has been looped many times because of what the characters, mm-hmm. because of the level of the character's knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, no, you could you could assume that maybe at some point he can use it as shorthand to be like, I know your middle name's Rose. Like, how how well do you think I know you based on, based on previous loops, right? Exactly, kind of like how he was doing that with other characters because clearly he gained mm-hmm. information about all the the J Squad mm-hmm. and uh, all the characters pretty much over yeah. over still, the many I, repeats. I like I like where they develop his character from here because he does decide to act like he doesn't know her, right? So like he goes yeah. to that training bay where she is, and then you see him think about it, and then he just walks away, and he tries to do it on his own. And he and he the and mission as they saw it at the time, he does do it on its own, and then realizes that you know the 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 enemy was you know uh, it's using a trap a false flag, yeah, in, <laughs> indeed, uh, Akbar. Um, so I think yeah, you're, that's a great point that this scene has its own arc, and that's not always a given. Half of the scenes we cover in this podcast don't have their own arc. No, um, but it's a great little sequence where you learn so much about both the characters. You get these great, great moments of chemistry or camaraderie between Blunt and Cruz. Um, yeah, yeah. I do think it's very interesting. I think I th- we maybe mentioned it above, but when we're talking about Tom Cruise's persona, he's not really a guy that can get away with romance or sexuality even anymore because i don't think anyone's terribly interested in it um he stopped i think being that kind of a symbol like he was in the 90s when he's extremely handsome and extremely sought after and that kind of thing i think he understands now that that's not really his bag i don't think he has much interest and i don't think the audience does mm, either yeah 
yeah, no one. I don't think anyone sees him as a sex symbol or or someone who they want to see in, a, in an intensely romantic relationship. Just like I was having a conversation with past guest Rob about how well Cass Cruz was in War of the Worlds as a absentee deadbeat dad. Yeah, because like, how could you ever believe him as like a warm, personal, in touch father? Right? Like, I think it, was, it actually worked very well for that movie. Um, but sorry, circling back around to this, I think this level of romance, if you want to call it that, is about as much as he can get away with. And I think it serves the movie very well. They do. I mean, the characters have a smooch in the Louvre later on, but it doesn't it's come not- across as particularly sexual or charged. There is way more this partnership, uh, this camaraderie. And I think, and you know, that that really helps Rita's character be something more than an object too yeah she has most of the agency in his arc she teaches him to fight she teaches him what the time loop is she's the one always prodding him out and she's the example of the truly brave soldier right she has the fear and she overcomes it she's all these things that Farrell talks about at the beginning as being this ideal soldier yeah and um, can you imagine how terrible this movie would be if she took what tom Cruise or what cage's plan was at the helicopter mm-hmm. which was you got to go back into the farmhouse and survive at the cellar until I get back. And then I'll come find you. And, and I'll come find and, you. And it'll be fine. Yeah. And I mean, the movie, the and movie, it could have went that way. Mo- yeah. Yeah. I mean, the ending of this movie is kind of like, have your cake and eat it too. I think there are other yeah. options for how it could end, but I also, I don't envy screenwriters with a time loop movie. <laughs> no, right? it, it's tough. The ending is like you said, it's, it's a lot of fan service. It's a lot of, you know, <laughs> It's a lot of whitewashing and cleansing they just, of all the bad they, taste. They, they went they went happy. There's no loss in this war, it turns out. <laughs> yep, no loss. Everything's just back to the way it was before the war. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't like that style of ending either, but I don't think it was the worst way that this movie could ended. Like I said, at this turning point in the film that we're talking about, at the helicopter, I think it's really important that Rita retains her agency. She retains, mm-hmm. more importantly, her character. Like, her character is that of a true soldier who's experienced 300 battles. So mm-hmm. it's a difficult character to relate to. Of course, this character would be cold and harsh and blunt. And mm-hmm. uh, there's there's number two. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's important that she didn't just bend here and, like, kind of follow what Cage was saying just because he was probably right and she probably knows he was right and mm-hmm. still starts up the helicopter and dies for the cause of just needing to push forward and stay in battle. That's why yeah. she doesn't that's why she doesn't want the coffee when she realizes that he has the keys. Mm-hmm. She wants yeah. to keep moving. Well that's the thing, right? Like she doesn't yeah, she doesn't succumb to the the looming fate that Cage is so clearly like, I don't know another way around this. Because the other thing is, like, I think it's important to notice when he leaves her on the beach, like, he doesn't bring her along anymore. That's not like, oh, she'll be safe. Everyone dies on the beach. That's true. He's like, she dies either way. So he's accepted that, where she's still fighting against it. Particularly in that, I love when she realizes what's going on. She goes, you can fly it, can't you? Which means she's not the pilot, but she still hops in there and takes off. That's like, right. I love that that determination right she's never flown that before as far as she knows and even if she has she doesn't have those skills so she's she's almost disgusted with his with his course of action to the extent that she's like fine i'll just take off 
mimic that's buried in the field will probably kill me, but like this is this is what we do. This is what we have to do. It's better than having coffee with you, Cage. Yeah. Three sugars. Come on, that's too much sugar. That is way coffee. too. I was gonna say the same thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think we probably covered all our bases. Unless you had anything else you wanted to touch on. I did just want to say because I was gonna make a note of the on the CGI in this movie at the beginning before mm-hmm. we got into the scene. But uh, just as far as the action sequences go, I really think that even watching it the, twice over the past week, this has been a movie that holds up CGI wise. There are some mm-hmm. rough, momentary shots. That I was like, okay, that can be done better with the tech they have today. But yeah. a lot of it was really well disguised in the way that they just shot the movie, which was a lot of like the tentacles of the creatures, which was also, once again, y- you come up with a good character design, good creature design, and it does a lot of the work for you. Mm-hmm. You have all this flailing in the tentacles, and it really allows for this uh, rapid-style editing that's always being you know wiped with the tentacles. So like the screen's mm-hmm. always being wiped. You have a lot of options for cutting and yeah. a lot of ability to have less <laughs> lesser CGI because you're moving at such a clip. And yeah, I, I thought think that it's, was it's all a... really well handled on the CGI department side and the design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a valid use of, like, chaotic, shaky cam. Yes. Because you're on the beach. You know, you're in war, so you don't have to have clarity of action. I do love some of the moments when you see the people who have really excelled with these power suits, like... Tasky and Cage later on they're performing these weird powered reverse jumps that are clearly on wires I think it kind of works in yeah, a way where you're like that's there's some gravity and some physics to the situation that don't make sense because of these power suits and the way they're, yeah. they kind of like move one way then they reverse another way yeah um, it's a good way of I like, kind of like there's some imperceptibility of like what these things actually offer to human combatants right yeah, you actually um, see the suits being used to their full potential. Yeah. And and, and I then, think there is something physical about the way they shot those, though, because I agree. The way they, oh, the, the yeah, characters no, they, move in the suits, yeah. there's something definitely mm-hmm. tangible and practical, not CGI no, they, there. Yeah, they, they made those. Those are, like, the suits in a number of the scenes are physical assets. Okay. And I remember one of the things I read was that, like, at the beginning, it took, like, 90 minutes to get crews into one of them. And by the end of the shoot, they had it down to, like, 10 minutes or something like they're just like an f1 formula team uh getting them in and out of this suit which i think all the suits are on wires all the time or that would make sense or they were or they no um i think what i read was that they were made out of, out of pretty light material but in between takes they would like go up to like a hook system that would just take the weight off yeah their shoulders that and, makes and a the lot actors of sense just kind of like sit there hanging on a hook yeah um but uh, no yeah i like how those operate and, and on the aliens too i think you're right like it's so hard especially as you as you said in sort of like lots of alien movies coming out like if you're gonna make something that's a good design and an effective design and something you can animate and also that doesn't look like something that's been done is a really hard target to hit yes i like these aliens uh i like they move in a way that you can't necessarily see very clearly half the time but there are a couple key shots where they give you a couple extra frames and i love like there's this thing where like the tentacles like pulse out of this one and it like buffets the frame with like a shock wave mm-hmm. there's another there's a great close-up on the alpha before cage kills it the first time and its breath is like um diffusing the air like it, because of its heat or whatever right. it's yeah yeah I, right? saw, I saw that too i noticed and that the, and the light coming from like within their mouths and their eyes too i think there's some really neat design aspects that kind of keep you wanting to see more of them but they never show you too much 
Yeah, uh, and I think, and I think the, it's pretty successful. A truly horrifying, daunting creature as well. Like something that mm-hmm. we would have a hard time beating as a human race. They're like so that, fast. They would, like they would pick thing, us right? apart yeah. at the mm-hmm. speed and the range that they can attack you at. Yeah. So yeah. I just wanted to give a credit to the creature design stuff. And uh, all that to say that the CGI in the scene we discussed today with the helicopter crashing through the barn, I thought was really well mm-hmm. choreographed. Uh, mm-hmm. And Tom, choreographing Tom Cruise is probably going to be one of the easier jobs that a fight choreographer yeah. has to do or stunt choreographer has to do. But his action and the way that they shot the action into like where the helicopter crashing into the barn was really cool. I, yeah. And then it transitions to a physical element of the car breaking through brick, the brick wall shooting. Yeah. Out. And, yeah, and like you can tell that's all real through the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really I, dig that. Yeah. Me too. So uh, that was the only other part of the scene that we didn't cover. I wanted to make sure we noted at least mm-hmm. um, with that. I well, think yeah, we, we just can wrap up the scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as we mentioned, the scene is in 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 almost all time loop media. You're gonna have this scene where they try to get across to the main character. Like, this is not so much of a gift. There is a limit to what you can do and what you can change and you can learn potentially. Um, and you're going to have to reckon with that. And then, I mean, that's just executed super well through great performances from Blunt and Cruz. Really great chemistry, which is not a given with. I, I assume with an icon like Cruz uh, to work across from him would be something else. And, uh, and, and a, a great sort of arc to the scene itself. Yeah, I agree with all that. It, all the reasons why we wanted to do this scene in this movie. And thank mm-hmm. you again for all the votes. Uh, Cause this was yes. really fun to talk about. Yeah. We'll have another vote coming up uh, quite, sh- quite soon actually for our, the first of our March movies. We're still sorting out what's going to be on that list, but uh, look forward to that on Instagram. And uh, with that, we can uh, move on to our shout-outs. We already kind of did a joint shout-out on the alien design, uh, but what are you going to talk about specifically, Tay? Well, I wanted to mention that scene that you kind of ripped on earlier with the London pub scene. Because mm-hmm. uh, I know that I, d- I didn't really like the the scenes following it because I thought that it was kind of misconstrued what point of the scene was but i like yeah, the that's Id- what i was saying too similar to our scene today like that we discussed i thought that kind of taking a break from the battle stuff and having this quiet scene where he chooses not to go through any of what he's gone through a hundred times already and he goes into london to have a beer and yeah. i thought that's a rare scene for a movie like this and i i really liked the moment and it's it's i really like the scene because it's short it's two minutes long yeah and it's cool we get we finally get to see tom cruise on a motorcycle which you know if there's a movie without got to without tom cruise on a motorcycle i don't even know if you can call it a tom cruise movie so you get that shot and you have him have yeah. a beer and then see the war from the from the city side and it's pretty the horrifying civilian side civilian right? side this, yes this whole movie is our soldiers warriors combatants at you know different levels of ability or commitment or or what they think war is about, or, or, or if it's a good thing. And this is your only chance to see proper civilians. And I think it's, it's an important inclusion that w- isn't always a given, like you said, in these types of movies. And perhaps my favorite part of the scene is when the guy at the bar calls him a coward. <laughs> I've been over there more times than anybody. As a matter of fact, I'm usually long dead by now. yeah yeah i mean that's it that's i mean you want to make that your tagline is just you know coward uh old military vet speaking to tom cruise yeah 
uh, I think it, it it definitely distills a lot of this movie. Yeah, I'm gonna definitely have that that that, <laughs> that yeah. inserted there. Yeah, yeah, we didn't, and I mean, we didn't cover the tagline, but the tagline is "Live, Die, Repeat," which also is the the title of the source material that then, or or wait, no, the source material is "All You Need Is Kill," right? Which they did not go with because the one of the one of the executives said that having the word kill in the title was not playing well. I and don't disagree with that. I I think all you need to kill all you need is kill is a is a little obtuse yes. and fits better on like an anime or like I don't know like a like a cyberpunk miniseries or something yeah. like I I don't think it describes the the vibe or tone of this movie very well. No, and uh live die repeat they try to go with as like a pseudo title or something mm-hmm. I, I couldn't really tell what they were doing they almost like changed I, the title mid ad campaign i feel and... like it was like theaters was edge of tomorrow and home release was live die repeat yeah because on my dvd has a cardboard outer shell and it says yeah. it's like live die repeat then the inner case is edge of tomorrow so i yeah who I, knows I really don't know the legalese of how that breaks down but it was an odd thing uh, odd well, thing because I also think it made people think that it kind of failed, which it didn't. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, 178 million budget, 370 million uh, box office. Cha-ching. That's, that's a great return. You know, not not massive, but also not a franchise. Doesn't have to be massive. This is fine. You know. Yep. You know what? It it made 300 million dollars. Can we just take a minute to <laughs> fine. S- to say like that's okay? That's good. Pat, it made enough. To Pat make, Doug Lyman uh, on the back. Yeah. Yeah. It made enough to make Jungle Cruise and still have a little bit extra for your marketing. It made more than Battle LA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so my shout-out is Bill Paxton, who I think come close to stealing the movie uh, in only having having uh, like a couple minutes of screen time, and a lot of that is saying the same lines over and over. He plays uh, Master Sergeant Farrell, who sort of deals with Cruise at his most cowardly uh, assigns him to J squad, gives him a nice big speech about how war is a crucible that makes people into better men. He talks about how he does not believe in fate. A lot of, a lot of sort of like, um, wink and nod, um, suggestions about what the movie is dealing with, about yeah, what, it's very what war creates. And he talks about how fear is okay. Courage is a matter of coming, overcoming fear. Um, but aside from how, Integrately, his character is written into the themes of the movie. Bill Paxton's delivery is fantastic, where he's talking about, uh, I mean, maybe my favorite line in the movie is uh, Cage says, uh, Master Sergeant Farrell. Master Sergeant Farrell, you're an American. No, sir. I'm from Kentucky. <laughs> right, which is incredible. Incredible. And then later on, he's saying, um, Tip of the spear. Edge of the knife. Crack him ass and uh i'm sure i'm sure tay will will put in all the uh all the appropriate quotes over top there only if but, you keep, uh, i just think only if you limit it to those ones yeah yeah just those two um it's just i i love it so much it's 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 such a funny performance it's so locked in it's someone someone coming out swinging on a small role where you, you could do less yeah really good bit part uh good character actor bill paxton's always charismatic and fun to watch on screen uh, yeah, R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Big time. Um, so uh, next episode's movie. Um, if you haven't figured it out by by now, we are big fans of Denis Villeneuve, and we're doing Emily Blunt this month. So we're talking about Sicario. Uh, that'll be 
our potluck episode so us two and our guest will each be bringing a scene to talk about be a little bit longer like blade runner 2049 and uh, our guest is a return we're having my brother james stacy from the gray nato come back because would you believe it he's a massive fan of sicario 2 he was messaging me last night just saying how much he loves this movie how much it gets better every time he watches it and he's somewhere around 15 or 16 watches i think yeah, I think he feels left out when he's not invited to one of our Denny Villeneuve podcasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it'll be awesome will, having James yeah, back on. Yeah, Excited yeah. for that. We're looking forward to that. Um, and then other than that, we got, uh, as usual, our recommendations. Uh, I went one direction, Tay went another. My recommendation is the movie Primer by Shane Carruth uh, in 2004. Um, this movie is not very long. I, I, I feel like it's under an hour and a half, um, like 70 and change. Um, it's an indie movie that was made on a shoestring budget, got got a bunch of awards, did very well. Literal micro budget, not not like a million dollar movie here. This is like a ten thousand. No, wasn't it movie. like ten thousand? Yeah, it was made on almost nothing. It is. I I don't want to say anything more. Like I've already told you that it's aligned with this movie, which is giving a bit away. But the nature of how that works is completely different. The less you know going in, the better. You should definitely watch Primer. Uh, it's a fantastic sci-fi movie in a way that you probably haven't seen one done before. And uh, if it is available for streaming, I will, uh, I'll put that in the, in the show notes. And I also picked a classified as a movie that would be classified as an indie movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It's called Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Uh, it's a film by the director Lassie Hallstrom from 2012. And uh, this is a delightful little charming indie movie. I believe it's just a, you know, a basic PG-13. There's nothing too crazy about this movie at all. It's a, it's a nice, safe, family-friendly watch with great performances by Emily Blunt and Ewan McGregor. Uh, and yeah, I haven't seen this one, but I did when I was you know, looking through Emily Blunt's IMDb. It, it came up, and I thought, that's a, I mean, it's a great title. And I think I even read the, the premise yeah about them trying trying to bolster the salmon industry it's in, like an, uh, in in the middle east yeah and uh ewan mcgregor is from scotland and he's like yeah. a fishing expert from scotland who comes down to the yemen uh and it's uh it's quite funny it's quite dramatic and uh has like i said just really good performances emily blunt is really flexing the the sarcasm and the humor so when she's mm-hmm. wi- when she's like quick-witted like that when her characters are like that i i always love it and i also love when ewan mcgregor's got his full accent yeah at play he, he like, has a it, great accent amazing. that he rarely gets to use yeah and they just yeah. let him go full on so that's, it's that's a, fantastic yeah it was a really it's a really charming watch if you're looking for something a little different than what i would typically recommend mm-hmm. sounds comforting but uh yeah with that that's our edge of tomorrow episode uh, you can uh, listen to it, uh, you know, with true method if you just want to repeat it and listen to it over and over and over. We'd appreciate that. And who knows, maybe you'd pick something up again. But if not, uh, as always, we're asking for reviews. If you're on iTunes, if you listen to us through their podcast uh, app, uh, please give us a review, a star rating, and a short comment. It really gets our name out there. And as always, you can find us on Instagram at SSCPod, uh, where we do weekly roundups of what everyone, including you, have been watching. And we do polls for our upcoming movie choices. And uh, you can also email us at uh, singleservingcinema at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And I'm going to repeat the episode now. <laughs>